listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on the problem Record, started with a gift who of recorded messages for any to special occasion to, to a loved one. Sabotage their shoulders for details. Adulterating food they served, saying, quote, If you are compelled to go back to work, go back with determination to stick together and with your minds made up. It is to stick together and with your minds made up is the unsafest proposition in the world for capitalists to eat food prepared by the members of your union. He then departed, leaving Flynn and Carlo Tresca in charge. Flynn who the New York world cited as the girl captain who is leading a host of men in a great strike, soon made an equally bizarre gaffe, announcing that the health standards at most hotel restaurants were already so lax union members needn't poison anybody. They could simply report on the establishment's ordinary kitchen practices, which were unsanitary. Tresca, rather than urge nonviolence as the IWW had in New England, directed marches of as many as 2,000 striking waiters, busboys, and bellboys through the Broadway Theater District in which the protesters heckled customers and threw projectiles often at the doors and windows of their regular places of employ. All these aggressive methods proved detrimental as it legitimized police suppression and the employer's righteousness in refusing the strikers' demands. On January 24, 1913, a riot broke out just outside of an IWW meeting. The police spies had been detected in the audience, and Tresca witnesses claimed had shouted, Kill the cops! Outside, a squad of police fell on the strikers. Tresca was hit with a police baton and arrested. The hotel strike was soon given up as lost, and the workers started to slowly drift back to work. Patterson's chief of police, John Bimson, had followed the saga of the hotel work stoppage in the New York papers and chose to act similarly, raiding wobbly offices, arresting organizers and strikers, but also reporters and anarchists. When accused by an irate Elizabeth Flynn of abusing the law, Bimson assured her, quote, You may have the rights, but we have the power. Unquote. Chief Bimson refused to issue parade permits to the IWW and the Silk Strikers. So each Sunday afternoon they held their rallies in the adjacent, more welcoming town of Heldon, which had a socialist mayor, William Brookman, himself a former Patterson silk worker. At Heldon, from the balcony of a farmhouse owned by a strike sympathizer, Pietro Batio, overlooking a large mill, a natural platform, and amphitheater. Flynn complained publicly that the silk strikers' children were going without meals and that they would need to be sent away for better care. Mayor McBride insisted his city could look after its own and demanded, Where are your hungry children? Bring them here. The city's mill owners tried to two strategic efforts of their own in mid-March. 
The first was to issue a joint statement calling workers to return to their jobs, blaming the strike on professional agitators. Suggested the eight-hour day would destroy Patterson unless adopted nationwide. They used patriotism as their second argument, flying flags from every mill. It had worked at other strikes, but this time the strikers held a march through town with flags and a banner that read, We weave the flag, we live under the flag, we die under the flag, but damned if we will starve under the flag. On April 19th, during a stone-throwing episode between mill detectives and strikers, Valentino Modestino, a husband and father who was not a silk worker and was not involved in the strike, was struck by a bullet and killed. At the moment of his death, Valentino had been in the act of shepherding his young daughter off the front porch of their home and out of harm's way. Flynn, who went to the house to assure his family that the IWW would pay for the funeral, found his grieving widow in the late stages of pregnancy, laying distraught on a bed in the same room with her husband's open casket. Then the strangest act in labor history occurred, what became known as the Patterson Strike Pageant. Popular at the time, pageants were public spectacles usually based on historical motifs. On June 7th, Haywood and Tresca led 1,200 strikers across the Hudson River to Madison Square Garden. Despite some favorable press reviews, after an initial rumor circulated that the event had earned $6,000, it was later learned that the night's actual take was only $348. In fact, the show had lost $2,000 as many tickets had been sold cheaply or given away. There were other workers' battles being fought far from the nation's view. One such place was the southeast corner of Colorado, where John D. Rockefeller Jr. operated the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, also known as CFI. Before 1913-1914, few, if any, outsiders, let alone journalists, came here. No one to notice the extent to which the CFI and several smaller mine owners, Rocky Mountain Fuel, Victor, American Fuel, and Primrose, Coal, among others, exerted complete feudal control over the region's coal miners, its communities, and its laws. The United Mine Workers moved to organize. The workers' goals were straightforward, better wages and working conditions, regular payment of wages, the fair weighing of the coal they dug, and the right to buy goods where they chose, rather than at the company store. The state of Colorado had mine reform laws on the books mandating an eight-hour day, semi-monthly wages, and prohibition against the use of company scrip, rules routinely ignored by mine owners. Rockefeller was unbending in his attitude that he could ignore the UMW, coaching his position as a defense of the open shop, saying he would not allow American workers to be deprived of the right under the Constitution to work for whom they please, Governor Ellis M. Ammons had acknowledged publicly that the revered document was considered not to be enforced in CFI's mining domain, as CFI owned all the houses, schools, saloons, churches, and stores, hired all the teachers, doctors, and ministers, and picked all the judges, coroners, sheriffs, and marshals. The CFI and other employers also began importing crates of rifles machine guns, and ammunition, 
and hired company guards, some of whom worked for the Baldwin Felt Detective Agency. These men, whom a Colorado State Inquiry would later term imported assassins, were despised on site by the workers and indeed had been savaged in a poem titled Mind Guard by the wobbly writer Ralph Chaplin. You psychopaths, coward with a gun, the worms would scorn your carcass in the mud. A bitch would blush to hell you. As soon as a son, you loathsome outcast, red with fresh spilled blood. The UMW had hired some organizers, Lois Ticus, known as Louis the Greek, Mike Labada of Eastern European Heritage, and an Italian named Gerald Lepati to work with the miners, various ethnic constituencies. Blood was spilled on August 16, 1913, when Gerald Lepat was slain by Baldwin Feltz detectives in a shootout in the town of Trinidad. Enraged miners retaliated by assassinating George Belcher, a Baldwin Feltz man suspected in the Lepiat murder, and Bob Lee, an arrogant mine guard who claimed to have ridden with the outlaws Frank and Jesse James. The miners set a deadline of September 23rd to hear from CFI on their demands. When they heard nothing, they had a pre-strike meeting. Mother Jones, the miner's angel, was there. She said, For God's sake, strike. Strike until you win, she told the assembly. Don't be afraid, boys. Fear is the greatest curse we have. I was never anywhere yet that I feared anybody. I would rather be shot fighting for you than live in any place in America." 11,000 miners soon walked off the job, but they resided in company housing. They and their families were immediately evicted. They moved into tents on land the UMW bought. The largest was near the village of Ludlow, with 1,300 people. Harassment from mine guards and Baldwin Feltz agents began at once using searchlights on the tents at night and machine gun bursts into the air. Governor Emmons refused the coal mine company's request for National Guard troops, but in late October, he caved. When Emmons gave the troops orders to help protect the scab workers resulted in miners being angry with the troops, the troops started raiding the tent towns under the pretense of looking for guns, roughing up uncooperative miners, one old miner so roughed up that he had to crawl back to his tent. Some of the scabs rebelled, claiming to have been lured to Colorado under false pretenses. These men quietly left their compound at night to seek refuge in the miners' tent colonies. Ammons moved to Ben Jones from the southeast part of the state. Although she made several attempts to defy this order and was eventually jailed, first in the convert-ran San Rafael Hospital, then in a courthouse cellar. On January 22, 1914, Brigadier General John Chase of the Colorado Militia was the antagonist in the so-called Mother Jones Riot, which broke out in the town when Chase's mounted troops confronted 200 miners' wives who were marching to support the imprisonment of Mother Jones. At one point, Chase lost his grip on his pommel and fell to the ground. Believing the women were laughing at him, he quickly remounted and in a rage ordered, quote, Ride them down! Ride them down! Unquote. The troops surged, their horses 
forward and, amid screams of protest, attacked the fleeing women, prodding them with their sabers and bringing numerous complaints of injury, including a victim who claimed a part of her ear had been severed. By the spring of 1914, the strike was more than six months old, and the ranks of the National Guard, due to state budgetary constraints, were drawn down to 200. Rumors of guns being brought into the tent colonies. Then on April 20th, a woman informed the troops that her husband was being held in the Ludlow tent town against his will. The task of confronting the strikers fell on two National Guard officers, Major Patrick C. Hamrock and Lieutenant Carl E. Tinderfelt. Major Hamrock called Ticus and ordered him to appear at the militia company camp. Ticus suggested they meet halfway at the small rail depot, which was agreeable to Hamrock. Ticus spoke with Hamrock and Tinderfelt at just before 10 o'clock. As they were talking, gunfire was heard from the direction of the colony, followed by a loud explosion. It has never been entirely clear what happened. Either some of the miners were positioning themselves in anticipation of an attack, and the soldiers perceived their movement as aggressive, or the soldiers simply opened fire. Tikus raced back to the colony, waving a white handkerchief as he urged men to return to their tent, while Hamrock telephoned his headquarters saying, quote, put the baby in the buggy and bring it along, unquote, in order to move a machine gun into the firing line. The miners retreated. The troops then descended among the tents, looting their contents and setting many afire. A total of 22 people died. Ticus was taken captive and was brought again before Lieutenant Tinderfelt. They fought over who started the day's bloodshed, and Tinderfelt, in a rage, struck Ticus over the head with the stock of his rifle. The lieutenant then left him in the custody of a militia sergeant and several soldiers. According to them, Ticus and another prisoner tried to escape, prompting them to fire, killing both. News of the massacre, the multiple deaths of innocent women and children, as well as the assassination of Louis Ticus, ripped through the nation's headlines. UMW President John P. White was livid. The state of Colorado, he said, has spent nearly a million dollars to aid the coal company to drive the miners back to the mines, and a vacillating governor has directed the use of the militia in such a matter and way as to bring discredit and disgrace upon the state. Scores of men, women, and children have been murdered. The Colorado Senate also reeled over the affair, its progressive members blaming the coal operators who had waved away possible arbitration. The governor felt taking money from the coal corporations for support of the militia and the militia itself for being trigger-happy. A published call to arms had g gone out, a message of vengeance for the Ludlow deaths urging striking miners to protect the people of Colorado against the murder and cremation of men, women, and children by armed assassins employed by the coal corporations. For days, gunfire echoed the hills and canyons surrounding the remote villages around Ludlow. Along a 250-mile front, 3,000 miners were under arms. They were soon joined by others. Passions were so heated 
and the impact of the strike on local commerce so extensive that after the burning of the Ludlow colony, all manner of men, teachers, bankers, drivers, sought weapons and took to the hills, creating one of the near approaches to civil war and revolution ever known in this country in connection with an industrial conflict. Several mines were destroyed and 75 people perished during the 10 days of fighting. Governor Ammons vowed the militia would put down the insurrection. The Colorado Women's Peace League led a 1,000-woman march to the state capitol, took the building, and refused to leave until the president was alerted, who ordered 1,700 federal troop soldiers into the state. Despite a coroner's inquiry, a National Guard commission hearing and a court-martial concerning the tent killings of the miners' families and the murder of Louis Ticas, no one was ever successfully prosecuted for any of the violence at Ludlow. The most damning evidence at the coroner's hearing came from the Colorado and Southern Railroad train crew which witnessed the militiamen torching tents and firing at a group of women and children who were attempting to use the passing train as cover so they could escape the militia assault. The suffering of the Ludlow families resonated that spring in distant New York City where there was labor agitation of a different kind. An estimated 300,000 jobless men had taken to roaming the streets, standing for hours on bread lines or besieging relief agencies and church missions. Quote, I asked permission to go into the church with the boys, and the priest would not give me that permission. Frank Tenenbaum, a youthful leader of the revolt, later testified. I then asked for food, which was refused and then for money which was also refused. Then I said to the priest, So this is your Christian gospel? And he said, Never mind about that. I will not allow you to talk to me in that way. When the church hired guards to keep the masses away, the ragged starving men bearing the black flag of hunger invaded the city's better neighborhoods, reported Mother Earth, home to the world's industrial potentates. The authorities threw the book at Tannenbaum. The young idealist, a court convicting him of inciting the riot and sending him to Blackwell's Island for a year as well as fining him $500. There is no instance in the world's history where the effort of the slaves to free themselves have been considered legal. Rockefeller's war was having a dreadful impact on his and his family's reputation as well as their personal safety Congressional inquiry into the situation had concluded that Rockefeller had been negligent and arrogant about the management of labor relations for refusing to meet with the miners and rejecting outside proposals of mediation. Rockefeller, to his credit, started questioning his faith in the guidance of the Western managers of CFI and their claims that all the violence during the strike came from the miners. He hired a Canadian industrial reformer, McKinney King, who had been that country's deputy minister of labor to head up a fact-finding inquiry. CFI announced that they were now prepared to concede certain improvements to the Colorado miners, only to discover that many of these changes were already the law in Colorado, that the company had long stifled and that their denial had been among the strikers' major grievances. 
The UMW on December 1914 formally ended the strike. Rockefeller fired the CFI managerial personnel he now suspected of having fed him inaccurate and biased information about the strike. I personally visited the Colorado coal region. We can't talk about these actions by labor at this time in history without talking about a famous wobbly songwriter and activist, Joe Hill, and his 1914 trial and the worldwide crusade to stay his execution. A merchant marine and itinerant laborer who came to the United States from Sweden in 1901, Hill was a self-taught writer and musician who scribbled his impressions of the country's labor struggle as he traveled the West in the first decade of the century. In 1910, he joined the IWW, participated in the Fresno and San Diego free speech campaigns. He became a prolific writer of labor songs such as Workers of the World Awaken, There is Power in a Union, Union Made, and The Preacher and the Slave. By taking well-known tunes and setting new words to them, the idea being that immigrant workers would be more likely to sing if the tune was familiar. On January 10, 1914, in Salt Lake City, a butcher named John Morrison, a former policeman, and his 19-year-old son, Arling, were shot dead in what at first appeared to be a botched robbery. The sole witness was another son, Merlin, 13, who claimed the killers had shouted at his father, We've got you now, suggesting the shooting was an act of retribution by criminals. No money or goods were taken, nor was a murder weapon found. Arling had managed to return fire, hitting one of the hold-up men before he himself was mortally wounded. Later that night, Joe Hill went to a hospital seeking treatment for a gunshot wound. He told police he had been shot in a quarrel over a woman, whose name, as a matter of honor, he would not reveal and proceeded to make his situation more precarious by initially refusing legal counsel. Given the poverty of evidence, he might, under ordinary circumstances, have gone free. There was no discernible motive to be ascribed to Hill, and the prosecution was technically unable to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Hill wrote in a letter to Salt Lake City Telegram, quote, I never killed... Morrison and do not know a thing about it. He was, as records plainly show, killed by some enemy for the sake of revenge, and I have not been in the city long enough to make an enemy. Shortly before my arrest, I came down from Park City, where I was working in the mines. Owing to the prominence of Mr. Morrison, there had to be a goading, and the undersigned being, as they thought, a friendless tramp, a Swede, Worst of all, an IWW had no right to live anyway. Although Hill was pillared at trial for being a wobbly, he tried to keep the IWW out of the case, insisting the accusations against him did not involve the organization. He even attempted to dissuade the IWW from raising funds or depleting its treasury in his behalf. Once convicted and sentenced to death, by firing squad, his flight came to wide attention, prompting a crusade for clemency or a pardon. He explained to Elizabeth Gurdley Flynn, with whom he corresponded throughout the ordeal, quote, I have no desire to be one of them, what you call um, martyrs, 
on the square, I'll tell you that all this notoriety stuff is making me dizzy in the head, and I am getting more glory than I really am entitled to. I put in most of the later years among the wharf rats on the Pacific coast, and I am not there with the limelight stuff at all, unquote. As the date of his execution neared, Flynn appealed directly to President Wilson, who at the additional urging of the AFL Telegraph Governor Spry requesting another look at Hill's case and a stay of the death sentence. On November 19, 1915, one of his last letters he told Bill Haywood, Goodbye, Bill. I will die like a true blue rebel. Don't waste any time in mourning. Organize. His only request was that his body be removed from the state of Utah before it was cremated. Hill's final words, Do not waste any time in mourning, organize, became a popular IWW slogan, one frequently invoked by Wobblies headed for incarceration. podcast with your family and friends please rate our podcast on itunes it helps others find us if you want to contact us to suggest a topic have a question or just want to say hi our contact information is in the show notes along with our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first